Welcome to School of Everything Else. Transmetropolitan. To understand who the fictional character of Spider Jerusalem is, it's important to know who Hunter S. Thompson was. This was a 20th century journalist who wrote for Rolling Stone, covered the Nixon campaign trail and spent time documenting the Hells Angels. He was the founder of Gonzo, which is a style of journalism that is written without claims of objectivity, often including the reporter as part of the story via a first-person narrative. Back in the 60s and 70s, this was a whole new way of reporting on the world. It hadn't been done before. And this is, of course, the origin of my own label, Digital Gonzo, the way I best described my approach to movie coverage back in 2010. I think I'd probably describe it slightly differently now, but there's still it still has roots in there. Specifically, Movie A Day it puts a lot of me in the narrative. Mm. So Hunter S. Thompson wrote for many publications, including Rolling Stone, Esquire, the Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, the San Francisco Examiner, Time, Vanity Fair, the San Juan Star, and Playboy. He wrote 17 books, he loved guns, and he was a staunch defender of the right to bear arms. He fought to legalize drugs and imbibed pretty much all of them. He wrote on behalf of the civil rights movement and fought ceaselessly against the corrupt, entrenched white power structure of America. He was played by Bill Murray in Where the Buffalo Roam and Johnny Depp in Fear and Loving in Las Vegas and The Rum Diary. Thompson committed suicide in 2005, immediately after the American public called George Bush Jr. back for a second term. He was 67 years old and not at all physically, mentally or emotionally well due to a lifetime of excess and thinking and writing the kind of things that normal people prefer to avoid. The character of Spider Jerusalem in Transmetropolitan is clearly as inspired by the real-life Thompson as much as the character of Raven in the New Century Multiverse is. Warren Ellis, writer of Transmetropolitan, is one of the greatest and most prolific sci-fi writers in comic history, the man behind the authority and planetary, and probably best known for this 60-issue series, which ran from 1997 through to 2002. Put simply, Transmetropolitan is a future shock cyberpunk political thriller set in a giant city filled with strange tech fashions and Babylonian excesses, where everybody is a consumer, constantly gratifying every whim. It's a chance for Ellis to hold up a black mirror to society, and even though this version of the future turned out in many ways as far off the mark as Demolition Man, it's also frighteningly on point and relevant, far too often for comfort. The ten volumes cover a famous journalist named Spider-Jerusalem, a bitter, furious, tattooed old man with a propensity for savage prose, foul language, and abusing every substance and person he comes across. In issue one, Spider returns to the city from his mountain retreat and begins once again to write for The Word, a high-profile city newspaper in fierce competition for ratings. Spider reports on city life as he circles his true calling, which is to fearlessly pursue tyranny and corruption in the government and police force. He is aided by his filthy assistants, the muscular, imposing Shannon Yarrow and the slight, aggressive Yelena Rossini. Both of them are smart as hell, both of them put up with an appalling employer whilst punishing and challenging him as much as he does them. Over the course of several bloody, eventful, frightening years where the, their resolve is tested repeatedly, both of them eventually grow to oddly respect him. 
This episode was commissioned by Kieran Dechtler. And our guest tonight is Alastair Stewart of Escape Artists. Hi there. Hello. And Alastair is also the guy who got us into this because he's the guy who sold Sharon the first Transmetropolitan book that she ever got, which was for me for a Christmas present because she didn't know what I would like. And Alistair recommended this. And as it turned out, I quite liked it. And uh, you got me, I hate it here. Yes, you did. And I am very grateful for that because um, it's possibly one of the most successful things I got to introduce Alex to rather than the other way around. Yeah. Which is a rare thing. <laughs> I think this and The Princess Bride are probably the uh, the main two. Now, rather than covering the whole thing, we're going to look at the first two volumes, the three-issue mini-arc, Back on the Street, and the nine-issue collection of smaller stories, Lust for Life. And we will begin at issue one, where a naked, tattooed man with thigh-length hair and beard, hiding in a log cabin, gets a phone call from his former editor, Mitchell Royce. I just have a fact-checking question. Yes. The phone call that he receives when he's on the mountain, is that not from the editor that he owes the books to? Oh, yeah, doesn't he call... Royce is who he then goes and gets the job with. Hold on. Yes. I I actually have the the brick-sized absolute uh... compilation with me here, so I can check if you want. Is this the one he just refers to as his pig-fucking editor? That's the one. Up a goddamn mountain. That ignorant, thick-lipped, evil, whore-hopping editor phones me up and says, Does the word contract mean anything to you, Jerusalem? I was having a mildly paranoid day, mostly due to the fact that the mad priest lady from over the river had begun nailing weasels to my front door again. I can't not read this in a Johnny Depp voice. I know. it's, It's kind of amazing. We had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, Five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, also a quarter tequila, quarter rum, case of beer, pint of raw ether, and two dozen amyl. Not that we needed all that for the trip, but once you get locked into a serious drug collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. Depp um, spent a long time with Thompson uh, when he was uh, studying up for Fear and Loathing. And um, if you listen to the way Thompson talks, it's kind of the same, only it's got this kind of much later life slur to it. It's kind of like, what what a goddamn thing over there. Um, And he's less distinct than Depp's version of him. So Johnny Depp, he lived with you and he... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was weird. A serious actor apparently will, uh, well, I, yeah, Johnny is serious. But the bastard moved in, we had him uh, uh, in front of a, a cell in the basement. Johnny Depp slept in your basement. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know our, the guest room, sort of, but it's yeah. a dark, dark place. <laughs> it has all kind of books in it, and it uh-huh. also had, uh, he discovered a, uh, a keg of uh, dynamite. Or, you know, flash powder, actually, gunpowder. Right next to his bed. What was dynamite? What was dynamite doing next to his bed? Why do you have all this dynamite? <laughs> well, for bombs. Uh oh. No, I'm just. Uh-oh. But ultimately, we, you know, if you listen to, to uh, Thompson from a lot earlier, he has that younger spark and that ability to really hone in. Like the earlier recordings, he's uh, he's, he's pretty much on the on the nose. And and like he's one of the three meanest men I've ever met. The other two were Muhammad Ali and Sonny Barger, the president of the Hells Angels. Those three men are a whole cut above everybody else I've ever, ever run into in terms of sheer functional meanness. 
functional meanness. Yeah. He was talking there about Jimmy Carter. And so when I read this, even though I didn't love Fear and Loathing at the time, I, I'd seen it and I, I was bewildered by it, but uh, it was really sort of caught up in the um, the character of uh, of Rel Duke, which is a sort of fictionalized version of Hunter himself, played by Depp, kind of sunk in there. And then when Spider turned up, that was given a much more of a purpose uh, in my head. And um, uh, this, this was a book series that I just immediately latched onto. And it just, it kind of, I'd only just seen The Matrix. So I was an angry young man looking for a target, something to point to and say, Injustice. And that's very much what the, the book's about. Not just the kind of, the, the role every journalist likes to think they have, but that transition from, you know, raging against the dying of the light to still raging against the dying of the light, just doing it with slightly worse diction and more assistance. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Spider, um, when I, I read him in later life, is, uh, is less of a hero and, and his flaws are far more apparent. And, oh, he's uh, tall. Yeah. He's an enormous tool. And it, it's really interesting to me to see how he develops. And I mean, the books which we're focusing on here are basically Spider at his least sympathetic. Mm. If, if I remember correctly, the phrase, fuck the holy gut wound of St. Mark, is used in one of these two books. And it th this really is Ellis and Spider with the brakes off, mm. just all the way down. So it's probably the rawest the book gets and there's some elements which are a little crunchy but the stuff that works really works with the transient riots you are shown a great injustice something for him to fight against but you're not given a face yet you're uh, aware that the beast is uh who's the uh what's the word for outgoing president uh lame duck <laughs> He's the president who is about to uh, finish his eighth uh, year. I, mean, I believe it's eight years still in this uh, version of events. Uh, it, it is. I think it is, yeah. He's out. Yeah. And uh, it, it, a lot of uh, Transmet covers, uh, at least the first third of it, covers the election and, uh, you know, who's possibly going to win. Who's um, the smiler up against? Because we're not really going to talk about what really happens in the election because that happens in later books, but there is uh, Senator Callahan. Vis visibly modelled on Tony Blair um, is uh, the smiler. He's this, you know, politician with a shit-eating grin, espousing uh, all American values and um, uh, trying to be super squeaky clean. But underneath that, there is this rotten, rotten little bastard who absolutely hates everyone. And the Beast, for all his flaws, is just a wretched, shitty industrialist who who doesn't mind um trampling people to uh, to keep the people in power happy whereas callahan is genuinely dangerous because yeah. nobody can nail anything to him because he doesn't stand for anything in particular hmm. he stands for whatever will get him votes but who was the smaller up against is the original question see i seem to I recall remember. that there's a there's a remark in um that he makes in is it Life on the Street that I've just read? Uh, Lonely City. Lonely City, that's the one. Um, he says something about the, the choice being between Callahan and somebody who, as appalling as they were, at least had beliefs and at least you knew what they stood for. And I thought he was talking about the, the beast. The beast, yeah. 
that he was actually going to go for a second uh, second term, so he's only been in there for four years. It's possible that Spider... Uh, Royce mentions that uh, the last time he wrote an article on the president was uh, a thousand-word article, simply the word fuck, written 1,000 times. I believe that was simply after the beast got in. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so chances are the Spider just left the city uh, because he just he didn't want anything to do with it anymore. Now, actually... This was written in 97, and there was no way that um, uh, Ellis could know this, but basically when um, Bush Jr. got elected a second time, that was a a big clarion call from the American people going, you know, can we have four more years of this embarrassment, please? That was enough to make Hunter go, you know, fuck this, I'm not doing this anymore. And it was enough for me to give up on politics at that point. I I was really into the West Wing at that stage, and I think West Wing was just about entering its fourth or fifth season, which is the one where Aaron Sorkin left. Fifth, wasn't it? Fifth. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I was somewhat disillusioned at this stage. And I was like, you know what? Fuck politics. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. And it's taken me a long time to get back in. And it hurt me <laughs> like fuck to be And then there. you went, fuck politics. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. <laughs> I can sympathize with Spider mm. very deeply on that front. God alone knows what... Um... Uh, Thompson would have done recently. Jesus. My, I, I honestly sincerely choose to believe that he and Bill Hicks are on a cloud somewhere laughing uproariously <laughs> and, and just get, getting whatever the, the Valhalla equivalent of blackout drunk is. Uh, this. That's very likely. Banging their heads against the hardest cloud they can find. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've, uh, looking back on uh, Bill Hicks was another huge uh, influence on me at a, a young age. Looking back on on my heroes now, there are you know there, there are definite flaws like Spider. You know the the fact that Thompson was a massive advocate for uh, firearms. I'm I'm the opposite. You know the uh, the the amount of people killed with guns suggests that it's not worth it to me. Uh, so I'm I'm opposed to that particular side of him, and and uh, there's some shit that uh, as much as I love Bill Hicks, there's some shit that he and I differ on strongly. But I think I my 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 finger is on the similar ethical pulse to them, and there's certain times when I wonder where Spider's ethics lie, or that he allows them to slip too often, um, especially. I was going to save this till later, but there's a, uh, a three-issue arc uh, at the end of the second book called uh, Freeze Me With Your Kiss, uh, where uh, Spider's frozen, sp- the frozen head of Spider's wife is brought out of re- uh, storage. Um, and I think that actually is one of the most damaging of the uh, storylines the whole way through, because it shakes your faith in Spider, and it doesn't really there's no real payoff to it since mm. the wife is never really explored the idea of someone actually engaged in a long-term relationship with spider that's interesting and we don't get to see any of that just that she absolutely hates him and tries to a very complicated scheme to get him assassinated when there are other ways rather than having yourself killed and your head taken off and frozen so that you can also incriminate him and also they're extremely cruel to a police bulldog for no apparent reason aside from grins Mm. but the core of the story is that spider was betrayed by one of the um uh, interns at the word who has a vendetta against him because 
she had been his assistant on a previous assignment and it became apparent he will fuck anybody over in order to get a story, which leaves us questioning Spider's ethics in a way that never gets directly resolved. It leaves us shaky when we need to be able to latch on to Spider. And at this stage in the writing, go, yes, this is a guy I want to follow. So, yeah, you're right, Alistair, in terms of that this is uh, Spider and is least likable. Mm. What um, one of the things that really caught my attention this time was a, a comment that Garth Ennis makes in the introduction, um, which is to he's he's extrapolating on the idea that he and Ellis are interested in the same kind of characters, but because Warren Ellis has uh, traditionally written for superhero comics, that. Uh, well, the quote is that he was that Ellis was forced to filter his own poison through the dubious medium of the superhero story. And as I read through the particularly the opening issue of um, the the first volume, this kind of is a superhero story in a way. Although it's more the kind of superhero that we expect to see now mm. than the kind of superhero that we expected to see 20 years ago. Um, the, I mean, the, the parallel... Well, that's mainly because um, the people writing for Vertigo then mm. are now more relevant now than the people who were writing for Marvel. I say that, but ultimately Marvel were just about to embrace um, uh, Mark Miller and... Uh, yeah, but the the whole situation of of Spider having had to retreat up the mountain because being in the city and doing what he did while he was down there was killing him. Mm. So this is kind of this is his fortress of solitude. This is Peter ditching his costume in an alleyway. I'm Spider is, no more. Exactly. This is you know Tony having his art reactor removed. She says, scowling. Um, the, the, the idea that the the superhero needs every now and again to retreat from responsibility because it is absolutely necessary for survival, but that is not a state that they can maintain. Certainly not forever, because the whole thing is when you can, you do, hmm. and yep. and he can. And the, the the bit that got me is when he's packing the car up at the end of that introductory scene. He says, "Journalists do not cry," and I am a fucking journalist again. And it's almost like this is something that he didn't choose to be, but he can do it. And therefore, he has an obligation to do it because he can do it better than anyone else. And that, to me, is the epitome of the superhero. Mm -hmm. And it's also him at his most elemental and ethical. Mm. Uh, Spider, and I mean, this evolves over the course of the series. Spider one-to-one is just a fucktastrophe of every conceivable proportion and size, unless you're an underdog. Which case, because that's what he used to be, he will kill for you. Mm. He will do everything he can to help you out. And that very kind of almost feral ethical approach is the south to the north that, that you mentioned, that you know he can't not write. He's it's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. You know, it's the, the a man standing on, on the saddle calling. Up he gets an off at the gallop, fearful lest he come too late. It's not a question of whether or not he'll answer. It's a question of how much it will hurt when he does. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah. And it and it hurts, and you can see the the pain in him in every panel. I mean the 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 whole from when he's set up, you you see there's sores on his feet. There's this constant round of self medication, cigarettes, alcohol, drugs, whatever he can get his hands on. He's taking that stuff for a reason. If he went cold turkey, the cumulative uh, come down would kill him. Mm. Exactly. The, some some of the um, I'm plugging through the, the the absolute edition right now. Some of the moments which work the best are the moments which sit right on the knife edge between comedy and horror. I mean, one, one of my all-time favorite issues of basically anything is the one where he decides the best possible way to come up to speed on the years he's been out of the city is to watch television for a full 24 hours. Mm-hmm. I, I have a friend who, who still uses silence. I am watching television as a leave me alone. I'm concentrating. Um, <laughs> there, there is a point towards the end of that where... Um, Shannon has gone out to, to get them some dinner and she finds him fetal in front of the TV mm. and it's just this panel of him looking so sad and lost on the ground and the dialogue is they made me into television Shannon I know spider I know eat your caribou eyes and she hands him <laughs> this huge bucket of fried caribou eyes and he looks at it and then buries his face in them mm. and it's funny and sweet and this I think it's one of the very first moments of weakness he actually shows to anyone in the book. And at the same time, he's done this to himself mm. and he's kind of liking it. You know, it's there's an awful lot going on when this book works in individual panels. You can unpack multiple levels in just tiny little throwaway jokes like that. There's a, a visual similarity in that first uh, issue with Alan Moore as well. Is that that can't be accidental? He looks he swears like a. Where's a... it's accidental? Yes. Where's it is both Ellis and Derek Robertson. Sure. How... Is. Exactly. Um, Alan well, Moore is a uh, folks. In case you're not uh, aware, is an extremely famous, uh, resentful of his own fame, very reclusive writer who appears like a filth wizard. He's got <laughs> this giant beard much like that he he was even credited on the bbc as mall center at one point <laughs> uh, and he's similarly aggressive and and, and uh, uh ornery mm. in in ellis's defense um the i think alan moore has kind of gone out of his way to embody the archetypal uh, archetypal old man up a hill yeah and i sympathize i really do i have longed for that myself but I need my finger on the... There's... Not only does Spider need to be in the city, there's a definite division, by the way. They never really talk... In in one of the articles about monoculture in I Hate It Here, he talks about the various cities around the world, uh, and he mentions them by name, like Sao Paulo and Tokyo. But aside from that, Oh, occasionally they do mention like Moscow, and uh, there was a mass suicide that he caused, or was it uh, auto cannibalism or something along those lines? He didn't cause it; he was there when it happened. He was there when it happened. Mm. It happened. Yeah. He was there. Uh, I, I seem to remember the actual line is something like, 
You gave him a phone? Don't you remember the last time, what happened the last time you gave him a phone? Don't you remember how many people died? That's the one, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, th there is the idea that there are cities around the world, but they never mention where the city is. You can assume it's New York, but there's it's hinted that basically the city stretches like a like a Judge Dredd-style city, like across states. That's how I always read it, that mm. it's essentially... And it, it's almost because, I mean, the, there is a later plot line involving a colossal and possibly yet deliberately engineered weather system that causes mm. havoc in the city. I always kind of read it as the section that Spider lives in is New York. Mm. And you go a few thousand miles west and you will never cross countryside and you'll mm. be in San Francisco. Yeah. Interestingly, that has less relevance now today because there's this division between the country folk and the city folk. And there's this uh, uh, sense of, uh, you know, that uh, there's these tiny little cities run by the cultural elites and that everyone in the middle is the real people. Ooh, do you know what it could be? What? It could be that the city is the coast, that it's, it's basically this giant ring around the outside of America. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So, yeah, Spider basically retreated from there to live in arboreal splendor. And uh, there's one of the few times when he actually seems happy again is when he goes to one of these reservations within the city and winds up in this unspoiled Neolithic paradise and gets to run around naked and, and actually enjoy uh, an uncomplicated life. <sighs> of course, yeah. The idea being that while you've got this uncomplicated life, there is no call on you to write because people couldn't understand There's your no writings demand. anyway. That's actually... But he'd still be a shaman. I, I think that... Well, without question. He'd be a mad one, but mm. yeah. I, I think the the way his, um, his muse, for want of a better word, seems to come upon him um, is in the bombarding of... Um, information and advertising and um, the, the little bugs that fly around the street and blast people with images and all that kind of thing. Mm. He hates it, but that's what that's what gives him what he then interprets and puts back out in his mm. writing. Without that, he doesn't have that impetus to write. If there is no carnage, if there is no um, demand, if there is no threat, if you like, his... Uh, it's almost like writing is is his defense mechanism, but it seems like kind of a biological defense mechanism, mm -hmm. like a, a um, uh, like an oyster putting out stuff around grit. He, he crams in grit, or he can't create the pearls. He crams in data in an, an effort to understand the world, and then processes it for us in words but partly so that he himself can cope with this madness. Yeah, one of the reasons Sorry. that I, I love this um, this book so, so much, I, I am a text person. Um, I love reading and interpreting movies, but when it comes down to it, I am, I'm, I'm a words person. And this, to me, although it's a graphic novel, it's the reverse of the idea that a picture paints a thousand words. Ellis uses a thousand words to make pictures, mm. and That's I love that. But that also, the the art of uh, Derek Robertson is truly extraordinary in oh, terms God, of evoking a, a disgusting future that's at the same time kind of alluring. 
Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's now retro-futurism, which is, uh, if you look at Alien, what they predicted in the 70s would the, the, that uh, spaceflight might be like in a, a few hundred years. Mm. Um, and <laughs> with CRTT screens and with all. With TV screens. <laughs> Last night I went to see Prometheus and Alien in a double bill. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's a bad idea because um, Prometheus, in terms of tech does not hold up as a prequel to Alien. It makes no sense. You cannot tie that, that rope bridge between the two films. You watch that super shiny Apple tech in, in Prometheus with this you know, Serenity ship flying around, and then you go switch it out for this you know, knackered old analog Soviet block um, Nostromo uh, with its giant CRT monitors, and it does not compute. It does not add up. But... That version of the future in Alien. If you have you played uh, Alien Isolation, Alistair? Yes. Going back into that and just being able to wander around and going, this is actually what tech would look like if they'd just, you know, gotten this far in the seventies. It's the same as playing uh, Bioshock or um, uh, uh, Fallout Three. It's uh, well, any of the Fallouts. It's fascinating to look at that kind of what. You know, Futurama has it as well because it's got that, um, like, sort of what they thought the future would look like in the 40s and 50s. Um, it's a beautiful sort of ray guns and rings. And, and uh, was, was that like steampunk ray gun? What's it called? Uh, ray gun punk or something? Ray gun gothic. That's the, That's one. the one. Have you said that one before on this? It's or- entirely possible. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's that. But. Um, the version of the city we've got here, Warren Ellis predicted quite a few things that actually ended up not only being possible, but like being way ahead of. of, uh, I, of I have a list, actually. I was going to say. Oh, yeah, I've got one too. Okay, well, let me do mine because mine's likely to be shorter and then you can fill in any gaps. I Including missed, but... some anachronisms here as well. Because well, yes, he didn't absolutely. predict some really important things and yeah. nobody did. Mm. Um, but the I, I've got here that the despite the fact that it's got this retro futurism feel to it, a lot of the tech seems remarkably familiar given that he came up with it in the late 90s. So you've yeah. got. The, the feed sites um, do replicate pretty well the web. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've got round-the-clock TV news, which is obviously the, the cable that we have now, live yep. reportage with instant response, which we have on Twitter. Yep. Um, we've got uh, the live shades are basically a combination of a, a GoPro and Google Glasses. Hang on, we need to rewind. The live shades are a huge part of Transmet, just in terms of visually. When you look at any images of Spider-Jerusalem, he's always wearing these. It's a... Uh, green rectangle and a red uh, disc uh, it, first off it represents 3D glasses second off it's, it actually represents an angered expression whereby one of his uh, eyebrows is really really down the other one is flaring up in fury um, but there's also a curiosity about it as well a sort of a raised eyebrow of oh okay uh, and they're also cameras so this is like Google glasses with little cameras inside it and they've got two gigabytes of onboard RAM wow wow oh wow <laughs> no man can live at that speed <laughs> and later on he gives Mary a uh, you know a small glass thing that she sort of holds up and it's like it's a camera it can take pictures and store the pictures on the camera and then you can look at them and swipe through them and it's got this view screen it's he's basically just describing an ipod touch without all the other features and this was like written in the late 90s very early 2000s but it seems like we were so so close at that point to what we now consider to be the future Mm. but the Continue, Sharon. Well, the only other thing I had, actually, was the makers, which are 3D printers. Right. 
that's yeah makers of 3d printers effectively they're cornucopia technology it's the one thing well it's one of the many things that we have yet to crack but it's one of the things that if we do crack it we could possibly put an end to world hunger a maker effectively recombines molecules to make something different so rather than earl gray hot yeah it needs a base block but basically rather than just carving it out of plastic it can convert that plastic into food or it can convert garbage into food i was going to say if you can't afford the base block you can go out and gather rubbish from the streets yeah put that in which gives a sort of a filthy feel to this beautiful future tech Mm. um but the one thing he didn't predict was communication like he's he's got it he's so close everyone's always talking on the phones but like there's a time when spider's talking to royce on skype a lot on his uh um his his giant chunky 90s laptop no that does get explained in lonely city Um, basically uh yelena tries to give him um, some pills for the phone trait. Everybody right. has phones inside them. Yeah. Menu comes down over your eye, you tap a keypad in your hand, um, but he refuses. Yeah, I know. He won't use it. I know. But th- that's it's a nice way of uh, ensuring that Spider can't make emergency calls if he's mm. in a It's, it's he's like a that fix. thing with a horror movie where, right, okay, before we begin, what's going to be our conceit for why nobody can use their mobile phone? <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> but, like, nobody has a tablet. Like, there, there's no. no one has an... Uh, they're not on their iPhone all the time, which is called, that's the one thing that they, like, they, they sort of touched on it a bit. They were using tablets as sort of a substitute for paper in mm-hmm. certain future tech um, uh, predictions and stuff. But no one could have expected quite how engaged with these little glass rectangles we would be. Well, they've got them implanted. Like mm. I said, when he asks um, Shannon to bring up blocks... Yeah, so there's a lot of holographic displays yeah, that everyone's got. she brings got. it up on a hand. But most of the people walking around in the street seem to be like uh, pursuing one fashion or another, mm. and that they all, they're all dressed like... I mean, I would imagine like you'd need Jean-Paul Gaultier or something if you were going to get like it, the closest is the Fifth Element, just in in terms of how like weirdly everyone's dressed. Yeah. Do you know what strikes me about everybody in the city though? If you if you discount the the people really on the bottom rung, yeah, um, who are ignored and roundly and trampled yeah. um, on a regular basis, but looking at, at sort of the middle classes and up, um, they have this cornucopia technology. It's not that nobody has to work because you still have to be able to afford things, but given that it's not that difficult to pursue your desires in whatever form they are, everybody seems monumentally bored mm. and they're constantly looking for new thrills and new buzzes and new things to to chase and, and basically challenge. They seem to be looking for things that are hard to get because so little is hard to get yeah. in this world. There's a lot less uh, robotic, like robot butlers and things than you might imagine as well. There's a lot of um, uh, like nanotech and things that do stuff for us. Mm. And like, you know, you're, you get your stomach replaced with a, a stack of bacteria so you don't have to eat anymore. Um, but uh, there's, there's a lot fewer robots, possibly just because robots have been done to death already. And if you factor in intelligent robots, they end up dominating the story. Mm, that's true. Mm. Alistair, you were going to say something. Sorry, Alistair, can I? No, it's it's fine. Um, I was really just just going to point out the way that um, the technology that's present is used almost to explore the idea of a self singularity. Mm. That this is a world, as you say, where you know technically there is no hunger. Um, that should be within sight of the kind of next generation esque utopia where no one needs to work and everything's fine. And 
the fact that everyone's kind of bored and antsy and doing really stupid shit. And selfish as well. There's so many selfish, self-absorbed people. It's an ugly book. Really kind of grounds it in a very, very impressive way. And it's technologically, yeah, there are some bits which are way off mark. But in terms of human nature, I can't help but feel the future is going to look a little bit like this. And Nightmares. weird as it sounds, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Because you're absolutely right. This is a book that is crammed full of terrible life choices. Mm. Often, often for no reason other than that, that, that a character is bored. And yet the things that stand out in here are the moments of kindness. Mm. Um, possibly because of that. That wonderful splash page of Spider in the Caledonian... Um, preserve stark bollock naked mm. looking out at two miles of completely empty countryside clearly enraptured with it is a really good example yeah. um, and it, it's full of moments like that I mean his relationship with Channon and Yelena in particular which becomes an actual relationship in one case at one point briefly and disastrously and leads to possibly the finest terrible joke in early 90s comics, which is, I'm sticky, Yelena. That means something. <laughs> um, but at, at the same time, there is tremendous respect on both sides there. And I mean, the, the, the Winter's Edge Christmas special they did towards the end of the run, which was, you know, Vertigo deciding that the best possible thing for a horror line to do was be something festive. But... The the Transmet short story in that, which is basically just an extended monologue from Spider followed by a snowball fight, mm. actually finishes with him walking off shot, stalking his two assistants with this colossal snowball thrower. Mm. And the final line is, they love my ass. And they do. And he loves them. And it's... Spider is, is, in, a, is in essence, in a very complicated cultural romance in this book. The the city is his muse, and frequently the thing punches him in the dick. But the people of it, the individuals, they're what keeps him coming back, and I really like that. You hit me once, I hit you back. You gave a kick, I gave a slap. You smashed a plate over my head, then I set fire to our bed. You hit me once, I hit you back. You gave a kick, I gave a slap. You smashed a plate over my head. Then I set fire to our bed. Oh, my black eye casts no shadow. Your red eye sees no blame. Your slaps don't stick, your kicks don't hit. So we remain the same. Elastics, sweat drips. Break the lock if it don't fit. Kicking the teeth is good for some. A kiss with a fist is better. I will say, back on the street as a first book, uh, it was uh, badly ordered. If you look at like the first book is three issues long, and then the next one is nine. Um, the the first one does not give you; it gives you a little slice of Spider, but I've seen it marketed over and over again at pretty much the same price as Lust for Life. That is an expensive three issues to get into. It's a tough sell, and it doesn't give you enough of the city. It to me, that's why I suggest people get straight in with uh, Lust for Life. 
Um, the other thing is, of course, that Back on the Street contains a horribly violent um, police beatdown on a group of uh, maligned individuals. And uh, that's it's so strong that it could turn people away, understandably. And unfortunately, now more than when the book was published, Hell yeah. that, that section is going to have resonance for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, it made me cry. Um, the uh, There's a, a line in there, though, that just really stuck with me. It stuck with me for years. There's one hole. There's one hole in every revolution, large or small. And it's one word long. People. No matter how big the idea they all stand under, people are small and weak and cheap and frightened. It's people that kill every revolution. The layers of um, of, of this is applicable uh, while you're reading. When it comes down to um, w- that extra step people need to take to actually affect change culturally and politically and being unable to because of that weakness, it hammers and hammers and hammers you throughout the whole book. Yeah. And... Um, the amount of uh, of tyranny that just gets uh, allowed and, and and waved through because it's easier to just turn your head and ignore it uh, is it becomes sickening near the end. And it's, I mean, I I, I get the horrible feeling I, I'm in a slightly more jovial position to you with regard to politics, but geographically in exactly the same place. I, I can't isolate the exact moment where I not only lost hope in British politics, but realized it would almost certainly never return. But it did certainly happen. And as a result of that, it's it was really interesting rereading this because it almost reads like a training manual. It, it's almost, and there, there is no way to say this without it sounding adolescent, and I apologize for that. But it is almost a book that kind of sits you down and goes, Absolutely no one in power is, in t- is as intelligent as they think that they are, and they have tried to convince you you are. You will survive, and culture will continue to expand and grow based on greed, idiocy, and people not wanting to die. If you accept that as a given, then you can operate within those parameters and help a few people out and have a good life. Which sounds Mal Reynolds-esque levels of grim. Oh. <laughs> when it's down to it I mean there is there's a reason the smiler looks like Tony Blair mm. and, you know were this book being produced today the smiler would look like well let's face it there's about six or seven different faces he or she could be wearing right now might and, be a woman exactly and again I, I always find it really weird that this is kind of this is the, the, the line that I end up taking with, with Transmet I actually find that tremendously hopeful that ultimately, and I mean, I would encourage anyone listening to read all ten volumes of this because some of it is hard work, but most of it is joyous. Seconded. Um, ultimately, this is a book about politics that, about halfway through, becomes a book about people, and the politics don't matter; the people do, and it's just a matter of divesting the pair of them and focusing on the individual rather than these huge monolithic concepts which try and keep trying to steamroll individuals. Individuals are great. Ideologies tend not to be. And that's one of the, I think that's one of the cornerstones of Transmet, one of the reasons why it works. I think that's where the serious overlap with the superhero mythos comes in as well. Because ultimately, the, the politics 
to me is kind of like the digging through the shit. Somebody's got to do it. Policies have to be written when you're dealing with, with the number of people that we're dealing with today. You have to have organization in some form. Absolutely. And somebody has to do it. And it is a, a thankless, uh, relentless, unpleasant job. And you also need people who can shine above that. You need the people who can stand up there and provide an inspiration to keep you going when the shit becomes too deep. And ultimately, I think for me, this is where the the kind of the, the superhero shape, regardless of what the actual details are and this is why for me I think you can put spider in the superhero category it's not because of leaping tall buildings in a single bound it's because a, a superhero can look at something impossible and still try it's not about being faster than a speeding bullet but they can see an oncoming failure and keep going and not stop and it's not about them being the strongest there is. It's because they can recognize their own fear or anger and other people's fear and anger and not let it stop them or, you know, provoke them into hurting someone needlessly. A superhero can do all of that. And we need to see examples of people who can do that to believe that we could do that. Exactly. And you you see, I mean, there are several points in this book where Spider is functionally broken down to his component parts. Mm. So there's at least one point where he horrendously miscalculates, and everyone but him pays the price for that. And he keeps going. And that tenacity, that almost kind of Henry Rollinsian work ethic, hits me where I live, you know, <laughs> for, for that exact reason. Mm. It's exactly what you said. It's the, yeah, this is terrible. Keep going. I am. And the fact that he has to accept that he's going to be hated for the fact that he gets out of the back of that one and nobody else does. Yes. And the, the person who's going to hate him more than anyone else is him. Yeah. There's a difference uh, reading Transmet now than there was in the late 90s. The internet has made a huge, huge difference uh, for very significant reasons I'm about to go into. One of the uh, um, screamed sentiments uh, that uh, from the uh, TV uh, issue that you mentioned, uh, Alistair, uh, is when Spider starts roaring down the phone at the uh, uh, cable. I think it's a talk show at that point. Yes. Um, but it's, you people don't know what the truth is. It's under their bullshit, but you never look. That's what I hate most about this fucking city. Lies are news and truth is obsolete. That line could have been written at any point this year or last year, couldn't it? Lies are news and truth is obsolete. There's a double bind in the proliferation of gonzo journalism. What I mentioned above is putting a lot of yourself in, uh, in gonzo journalism, putting a lot of opinion in there, and being unfettered by a publication's purse strings. Basically... Uh, Hunter S. Thompson was one of the few people who was able to say this shit and still be paid for it by Rolling Stone. Then the internet finally hit around about 2000, maybe February 2000, when all of the tech companies realized, oh, hey, the millennium bug's not going to happen. We can now allow the uh, internet into everything. And um, 
uh, over the the next ten years or so, the rise of blogging happened, and then YouTube became huge, and uh, Twitter, and then people like Alex Jones became massively popular on uh, Infowars. And I actually remember hearing a conspiracy theory concerning Alex Jones years ago that Bill Hicks, in <laughs> fact, hadn't died, and that Bill Hicks was alive and playing the character of Alex Jones, who was, in effect, the exact opposite of the guy he played in life. Um, I didn't believe that that could be true. I didn't believe that Bill Hicks would actually be capable of, of uh, sowing that level of evil. Unless he really fucking hated us. Um, but Alex Jones, on the surface, superficially speaking, has the same level of conspiracy theory, whack job uh, sentiment as Spider. Until you start scratching below the surface. And of course, Alex Jones has in, in recent days uh, been put forth as an actual character that uh, um, he's been playing for all of these years. And uh, profiteering on people's paranoia. And the idea being, I'm telling you the truth. This is the truth that your government don't want you to know. Um, and at the same time, somehow sort of like bigging up the incumbent new Republican government. And at the same time, like, just sort of this constant in and out and in and out of, of this is the truth and lizard people. And just confusing and scaring people and, and keeping everybody on edge. Superficially speaking... That's similar to what Spider's like. And there's a million bloggers out there all screaming that they know the truth. Mm -hmm. Because gonzo journalism is not special anymore. It's everywhere. And because everyone can do it, none of it really means anything. Or you have to have an extremely good filter to be able to find the kind of person that you like. This person has their marbles. Or at least has a finger on, ethically speaking the right way to move i think if you if you're looking at that and you're looking for that what you need to be looking for is authenticity hmm. because i think that there is a difference between true inverted commas gonzo journalism um and in in terms of like what hunter s thompson was trying to to produce and be a proponent of and effectively and, being a shock jock and yeah basically the between howard stern there, and uh Hunter S. Thompson. Exactly. If if what you're putting out there is opinion, and that might be your opinion, I I accept that. Um, but if you're doing it to bounce up and down and get attention, and if you're doing it because you think people will be impressed by it, that's not you. That's not yourself that you're putting in your work. That's a shiny version of you that you want people to like. There is a difference. If you're going to write Gonzo style, show me you. Show me what hurts you. Show me what rips you apart. Mate. Show me what you get angry at. But write from your guts make yourself vulnerable yeah, absolutely if if you can read somebody's work and there is not a hint of vulnerability in there that's not them nailed it absolutely nailed it that's the that that is the huge difference between every single edgelord blogger there is regardless of political leanings and spider because they're all performative mm -hmm. every single one and uh, None of them could pick an individual member of their audience out of a lineup. So you've been 
This is a comic book where the main character is a journalist who shoots people with a bowel disruptor. I, mean, I was going to say, that, I have that's not nothing. You <laughs> mark the bowel disruptor. It is significant that Spider's weapon of choice is something that is non-lethal and uh, is uh, it, it, it has various settings: loose, watery, prolapse. You say non-lethal. I'm pretty sure there's a shit yourself to death setting on there somewhere. <laughs> I would only save that for the direst of emergencies. Um, you know, burning anal geyser. It keeps getting new settings added to it. Mm. Yeah, there, there is definitely a shit yourself into unconsciousness. He uses it on the president. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure the words gastrointestinal apocalypse are used in... Oh! <laughs> Occasionally, uh, they are forced to use actual firearms, and that's when things have gotten really, really bad and out of control. And that's usually when they're fighting for their lives. Mm. Um, that, that's another reason why um, uh, Freeze Me With Your Kiss is, is my least favorite transmat story. Like In the first few panels, he smashes a, like three men to death in his kitchen. Uh, because they're trying to kill him, and it's you know, Spider suddenly is this lethal Jason Bourne weapon. Like, worse than Jason Bourne. Jason Bourne just takes people down. Spider killed them like Jason. And and how I, great would it have been to have seen Patrick Stewart do that? Indeed, um, Patrick Stewart not only looks like Spider, but actually reads the book and and kept you know chatting with Warren himself. You know, conventions this and that. He wrote an intro for the uh, uh, the uh, sixth book. I want to say the fourth, fifth. Um, uh, basically, he would like to have played Spider. Now, if you read his intro, it's like the Patrick Stewart. The, the the genuinely very weird thing about this is because this book is kind of disturbingly old now, mm. a couple of ways. The reprint system for it has changed a couple of times. I mean. Like you said at the top of the show, you can take the guy out of the comic store, but you can't really take the comic store out of the guy. I could probably still quote you the Star Order codes for those 12 collections, given half, <laughs> a, a half a chance. But I know that a little while ago, they kind of acknowledged the point that you made, that back on the street selling for, I think, £12 pounds hmm. at one point, three issues, isn't a good look. And um, folded that in, so I think it's now been done as as full years. I think that the the last reprint for it was was year one, year two, year three. Uh, year three. But that's still a high barrier for entry. You want to keep your barrier. barrier for entry. You want to give people. You want to be generous with your first book, and then let everyone like just to start let, like the first like three or four issues of uh, uh, Lust for Life. You know when he watches TV and when he's. Um, Dressing up as Jesus and smashing up the temples of the moneylenders—that's that's good stuff. And that's and, all and, first book stuff. 
and if I remember correctly, gets a bit excited and needs to have a bit of a nap after that. Yes, yes, yeah. he does. Uh, God, uh, God riding shotgun is that one. It's, uh, um, it's, it's, he's. Uh, railing against um, re- new religions popping up every five seconds specifically uh, because it's so easy to prey on the disaffected and disillusioned and desperate uh, because they make easy marks. Uh, and, you know, as, uh, Spider is on the side of the people being duped by these dogfuckers. Okay, here's the Patrick Stewart intro. If I confess that I lost it after the filthy assistance, what foul perversions would I be accused of? If I praise the artwork as the wittiest, most disturbing since George Gross, I would soon find myself depicted as a fucked-up, mechanics-addicted, feces-smeared background character. If I hailed this vision of the future as persuasive and properly terrifying, I might never live to see it. You get my problem. I think, however, that I can safely say this. I know this city. I have read the word. I have listened to these politicians. I have smelled the stink of greed. I have thrown stuff at the TV. I have wondered what future there is for truth and beauty. I have wanted to go and live at the top of a Yorkshire moor. Warren, tell Spider to stay healthy and keep writing the column. Patrick Stewart. And again, every single one of those words could have been written in the last 18 months. Yep. Honestly, I mean, I've been wanting for the... I didn't necessarily want a movie of this because I think people would not understand or take it and the studios would get terrified and the budget would be too big. Um, And it could possibly work as an HBO show if Preacher... Is there even a second season of Preacher coming? Yes, now that they have admitted that the first season of Preacher was actually the zeroth season of Preacher. So it's like a prequel season okay well if that does well they may consider it but the budget i mean the difference between small town texas and megalopolis is pretty huge but what i've always wanted to see is an animatrix style collection of 10 different mini vignettes from different animation studios with patrick stewart voicing spider i think that would be within budget for for dc owned by warner brothers by the way my understanding is that very nearly happened Oh shit! Uh, on a stick. I, I am abs- I, I'm absolutely convinced. I read somewhere that for the longest time, there was, and I mean, again, this is kind of nascent. It's not even Web 1.0. I think it's Web 0.9 at this point. Mm. There was a very nascent plan for a series of flash animations of Spider, mm. by Pat, voiced by Sir Patrick Stewart. Ellis has a couple of bits of concept art from it kicking about somewhere, still. And it, it, like so many of his film and TV projects up until now, it got right up to the door of happening and then disappeared. Well, I would say that uh, uh, the, the world isn't ready for it, but the world seems to be getting a fix of horrific violence and darkness. And we got some violence and darkness for you, folks. It's right here. And there's politics in there, too. But people tend to go for the, the darkness and the violence to escape the politics. It, it might be too on point. It might be too realistic. It may be too nihilistic at this point. Although there's an interesting signifier coming down the line from a very unusual location. And if this does well, then the kind of material that you see in Transmet, the kind of very unflinching exploration of how people interact with political bodies is probably going to happen. Uh, the next season of American Horror Story starts the night Trump was elected mm. and is about the staff of both campaigns and something unspeakably horrible happens to them 
which continues to unfold in the background as he prepares to take office. Now, I'm a big fan of American Horror Story for for two reasons. Firstly, when it's good, it's very, very good. And secondly, when it's bad, it just comes apart. No TV show fails like American Horror Story. (laughs) (laughs) What an honor. It's, it's ser- seriously that uh, I have. I, I mean, I'm, I'm paid to review it, and I've I've done so for about three years now. And when they land it, it's amazing. And when they don't land it, it's nuts and bolts spread across five miles of desert. But the failures are as interesting. So if they're aiming for this and they miss, it's going to be fascinating. If they're aiming for this and they hit, it's going to be the best twelve hours of TV no one's seen coming. <laughs> and if it works then I would imagine that's going to probably for about eight months, given the writer's strike that's about to hit, as opposed to the, the usual kind of four to six, that's going to have a knock-on effect on shows like Madam Secretary and Designated Survivor, and people are going to be looking at more political shows, and who knows, this might resurface. Like Sorry, a- Alistair, can I get a rewind there? Writer's strike? I was I know no writer's strike. Okay. Um, the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, are about to go on strike. They- the same as the one that they did uh, about ten years ago. Yes, the reason being their health insurance has not really lifted in that time. Right. And on top of all that, you find that they find themselves in this unenviable situation where time and time again, a new means of writing TV will come to the network and they'll go, well, this is a risk. Can you take a pay cut? And the WGA in the past has always said yes. This is why. And this is an actual example that was quoted by a showrunner. They have a friend who writes for The Walking Dead, which is the largest TV show in the Western world, even from the last last season where it took a bit of a hit. Eight or nine million people watch every single episode live. They have another friend who works on a network show, which is on its fourth season and is well regarded, but its highest episode gets two million viewers. Hmm. The staffer who works on The Walking Dead is paid less. Because it's a cable show, and cable's a risk. I mean, it's only been active several decades. It could fall apart at any time. So what you have is this combination of this baked-in system which screws writers at every turn. There's really no other... There's no way to say this politely. Mm. And the assumption that everyone will be prepared to take one for the team, and everyone in this case always being the writing stuff. There's a couple of... um, John Rogers, the creator of Leverage and, and the co-creator, I believe, of The Librarians, who is always a very good Twitter follower at the best of times, uh, has a lot of information about this. Likewise, Amy Berg, who is a Leverage alum and I think worked on Buffy and now co-runs Once Upon a Time and about two or three other things. And the point that they've made, which just really boils this down to its most essential elements, is this. The amount of money they are asking to be put in the health insurance fund for the WGA is six studio executive salaries. That's it. Mm. And relatively speaking, it's not very much. And when you but when you see it spread across six people's salaries, and you realise that you have writers who are living job to job, you can see the colossal institutionalised discrepancy. I mean, I have a friend who's a, a screenwriter. And the point that he makes, and he's very militant about this stuff, is this. Yeah, creative endeavors are a team sport. Yes, film and TV are a team sport. Try making any film without a script. Try making any TV show without a script. 
Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End is one of the most successful films ever made without a script. <laughs> they can do it. That's what frightens me. The interesting thing about that, and I would have to check it, is I think if you, I am moderately certain, if you went back and mapped at World's End onto the time period, I think it's one of the things that got fucked by the last strike. I know, yeah, I know. Solace did. I've been considering for several years now doing an episode charting the effects and influences of the writer's strike. They can't all be negative because we we eventually got the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which has upped the bar for blockbusters. But there, it was so much damage caused by that. If you need someone to come on and explain how the writer's strike is directly responsible for probably still the best season Supernatural ever produced, I'll happily (laughs) do that for you. (laughs) <laughs> I would happily get you on for that, simply because I don't want to just fire my mouth off in supposition <laughs> without someone going, well, hang on a second, Alex. Hang on, hang on, hang on. What about... Um, because I, th- I think it has been... It has had good and bad effects, but the, the thing that it can that can go very, very wrong is the idea that uh, the execs who won't bend, who will just go, right, we'll just find another way to get this thing written by some non-union... Um, you know, a button chicken who will just, you know, gamely peck out what looks like a script. I mean, the writer of Speed 2 wrote the most recent Pirates of the Caribbean. How did that even happen? How did that even happen? I think... Sorry, go ahead, Sharon. I was just going to say, I think I see at work for Richard Williams, he needs to go door-to-door to all the studios in Hollywood and explain to them what happens when you try to make a movie... Without storyboards or script. without a script. <laughs> uh, Alistair, if you haven't listened to our... And this goes for everyone, actually. If you haven't listened to our The Thief and the Cobbler show, do. I've not heard a single person talking about it. It's one of the best shows we've ever done. It's hilarious, and I say that as someone who was in it. <laughs> <laughs> I do say so myself. Anyway, can we get back to Transmetropolitan, yes. please? Because yeah, they paid us for this, goddammit. Apologies. I want to give them a good ride for their buck. Um, Another Cold Morning is maybe one of my favorite uh, issues of this uh, first. So glad you brought that up. First two. I can't actually say which film this is because it spoils the film. But uh, everyone who knows what Another Cold Morning is about, and everyone who doesn't, I'm about to tell you, will know exactly what film I'm talking about that I can't spoil. Uh, It made me go, oh, okay. Whereas the rest of the audience were like, what? 
because they hadn't read Another Cold Morning. Uh, it's about a, uh, a photographer from the 20th century uh, named Mary who um, hung out with some of the most important political figures and uh, was there right in the hotbed of activity during the 60s, uh, you know, during civil rights, during uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, she photographed it. She documented it. She, that was her, her eye and her ability to do that. And as she reaches her old age in what must really have been the turn of the 20th century, um, she dies shortly before her husband dies, and her head is frozen and rethawed out in the city in the future. Now, they never say exactly what year it is in Transmetropolitan because it would date it. But they do. There's this really dark line where uh, you know it, one of the first things she does is ask what year it is, and they did the worst thing they possibly could. They told her. So Christ knows what far flung or far too close year that equates to. But either way, her husband is not there because he died in Kuala Lumpur a few months after she did of um, some vile toilet-based infection, and. Mary is suddenly a 20-year-old redhead uh, being thawed out, and Spider goes into grotesque detail as to the level of not giving a fuck that, uh, you know, specifically with, with information that I'm not entirely sure how he got hold of it uh, regarding the unfreezing process and the callous way she's treated. And those who've been thawed out in the future are... An underclass. They are begrudgingly here. They are swept under the carpet. They are given room at a hostel, and that's it. They are left. They're pushed out into the streets during the day, and then gathered up by the more together, um, unfreezed, to, you know, scream the night away. It's horrible, seeing what has happened to poor Mary, and uh, she's you know sitting shivering in an alley and spider comes along and uh, he's been telling her story the whole issue and clearly she talked to him about it and later on he gives her that digital camera I mentioned in a, in a later issue and that's about all you ever really see of Mary I can't remember if she turns up near the end oh she does yeah okay good what bugged the living fuck out of me this time round was uh, aside from the, the the shaky ethical ground that you were about to get with him because freeze me with your kiss is about to come around why the hell doesn't spider i mean he's acting like a bbc documentarian watching a turtle drown in uh, uh the in the traffic like well we can't really interact with these uh, um creatures we're only supposed to document them she hire her as your photographer spider get her back on her feet this is a fucking vile system exercise that compassion that is in there do something about this instead he uses it to uh, he uses his article to point to the people reading it and says you aren't going to do anything about this he's looking at this as a grander problem that he can only help one person at a time but he's gotten this whole story out of mary and she's a remarkable woman who's had a remarkable life and he effectively leaves her to her horrible fate it's an interesting one for a couple of reasons. Like I say, I know she turns up much later on, and I want to say she's in a much better place when she does. Hmm. Um, it's been a while she's since... She's still I've... on a park bench when he gives her the camera. Yeah, she is, but at the same time, I, like I say, I want to say that she's adjusted and I think has an actual house and a job of sorts at that point. But I, it's been a little while since, since I've, I've read that. But weirdly... Your point that you know he basically does this 
this is arguably Spider at his most purely journalistic. Hmm. He does most documenting. You're absolutely right. He doesn't intervene much. He clearly wants to, but he doesn't. And the end of the issue makes it clear that what he's doing here is almost an empty exercise in style. You know, he's helped the barest minimum he can. He's raised awareness, and then he just has to hope that the city that he knows will not give a shit will somehow give a shit. And that approach is actually, I, I think, is very neatly summed up in a panel that really popped out for me on, on this reread from, from a, a later issue. And I, I think it's the end of this, the story with his, his ex-wife. And there is this panel of spider, basically fetal, just curled up on, on the floor of, of Royce's office. And he says, I'm so tired. Hmm. Tell you what, though, there's going to be a column in this. And the look on Royce's face is somewhere between horror, greed, and pity. He says, "Is yeah, there always is. Spider's a content machine. He he knows how to do one thing unbelievably well. And I'd argue a major strand of Transmet is him learning how to do something else, being a human, well enough. Yeah. Mm, that makes sense. I think, guys, I think the the not doing anything solid to help Mary, other than giving her the camera. It, that struck me as being a self-protective thing. Because ultimately, if if he's going to report on people, and if he's going to put this information out, and he does it time and time again, he gets into situations that nobody else can get into and puts them out there so that other people can know about them. Now, if he tries to affect those situations while he's in them, the problem then becomes he has to do the same thing next time. And then he has to do the same thing the time after that. And eventually it's going to get to the point where he can't do anything. And it's going to kill him. Yeah. And I, I think you're absolutely right. It's an, it's an impossible problem to solve. Because the moment he crosses the street, he, as you say, the next time he crosses the street will be in a body bag. But the only other way to do it is just to watch and report and try and hide behind the lens, the sunglasses. Cause that's the other thing about the sunglasses. They present an image, but they also keep him at one remove. Hmm. You'll notice in that first issue folks, when you read it, that spider's eyes are, are wide and flared and he's sort of, he's hiding behind this giant mask of hair, but he looks a lot more vulnerable until he puts on the shades. And then you never see his pupils. You never see his expression aside from his mouth indicating rage or, uh, Sneering, I suppose. <laughs> he's got about three expressions. Yeah. He's, he's angry all the time, and it's worth bearing in mind that anybody who is angry all the time is so because they can't afford fear and they can't afford sadness. Yeah. But uh, whenever you see his eyes, uh, it's almost always in a moment of vulnerability. Yeah, like if he takes them off, uh, in that episode about the TV you mentioned before. Um, and there, there are situations when he will just stand, you know, staring out into nothingness and you'll become aware of the fact that he's dying inside. It, the glasses are his chief protection. And the fact that they're also able to take pictures, 
he is he's a living documentation machine he has become this sort of mechanized news gathering and processing service and they're, they're so close uh, Warren's so close to to catching BuzzFeed there's a BuzzFeed like feel on the street where people like he occasionally meets roving reporters who are asking him incredibly shallow questions so that they can publish a 10 second article takes 10 seconds to prepare takes 10 seconds to read sell a lot of ad space it's it's nauseating how shallow everything is it's almost like spiders wandering around the internet made real yeah. mm. and i think that kind of sums up one of the things that makes this city feel fictional to me mm-hmm. um because the i mean the best sci-fi cities feel feel real they mm. feel as though that that's something that not only could happen but is going to happen mm. um, but one of the things about this city that feels uh, artificial to me is there's no recognition of the impact that living this way has on people mm. Um, and you see it in the the way people treat the revivals. You see it in the attitude that the, the people who become the foglets have, um, the way people pick up and drop religion, the way they pick up and drop um, the, the way they present themselves, all sorts of things. Foglets, Mental- by the way, folks, are clouds of gas of uh, people who have become little... Oh, sorry, clouds of dust, people who've become little tiny nanomite machine yeah. clouds. Sorry, should have explained that. Um, you say foglets. foglets. Is it? Oh, everybody knows what foglets are. Um, but the, the point being that there is no acknowledgement of what impact this has on people's minds. And I think one way in which we have very definitely overtaken this is concern about people's mental health and how they react to the situations that they find themselves in. The way this city is set up, it is ridiculously intense. It is insanely constant 24-hour bombardment, and there are two options. Either you can cope with it or you don't. It also seems to be a world where uh, uh, Republicans have won there's very little uh, um, liberal tears going on. There's very little compassion being voiced by there's, people. Well, I think there's there's very much this sense of everything is okay. There's very little oh, shit. It's, that is outlawed. You know, every so peccadillo... So, from our point of view, because nobody gives a shit about anybody, Republicans have won. From Republicans' point of view, everything is permitted, so liberals have won. Yeah. Fuck. And it's hell for Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst of both worlds. Ah, <laughs> oh, but there's the the separate. There are things you need to do when constantly combing the internet to protect yourself. So, like I say, Spider's got those shades. He go his living conditions. He goes from a crummy apartment to a better apartment, and then that gets compromised, and he gets attacked, and goes to a better apartment, and then eventually he ends up in Puritan Muse, this incredibly high palatial. Olympus type apartment so far above the street he can no longer see the news and there's a biting point where Spider's got his finger on the pulse but he's terribly in danger yeah and that's that's really the point where this book takes what I think is, is one of the best hard life turns into its final act of any book from that generation Hmm. There's there is a very major event that ha- that happens in that third act that is possibly my favorite thing Alice has ever written, and I'm 
including the issue of Excalibur where everybody gets drunk and the um, Stormwatch issue, which is done entirely in after-action reports and includes the deathless line, Hellstrike, don't be subtle. Um, oh, uh, one of my favourite uh, um, Warner's moments outside of Transmed is the death of Jenny Sparks and the birth of Jenny Quantum. That's always stuck with me. See, I like that, but then Miller takes a huge steaming dump all over the authority and proceeds to do so for a very long time with lots of other things, and, and I, I part ways with it. But I do like the Jenny Quantum birth. Understandable. Miller can get stuffed. Um, but <laughs> Oh, by the way, can you tell us what this moment is? Because I'm, I'm thinking of three different moments I need you to qualify it. Spider develops a medical condition. Yeah, and it okay. is absolutely the medical condition you expect him to develop, <laughs> um, and it leads to the best payoff Ellis has ever done. Yeah, I, I the final scene in Transmet is just the the only thing I can compare it to is the Ninth Doctor's regeneration, and I hate, I really hate that so often. Anything in British genre fiction has to come back to Doctor Who because it's the only bloody thing we've bothered doing for 50 years, so it's the only language we speak. But the fact that the Ninth Doctor's regeneration is exuberant, the fact that he's able to go, yeah, I was great, bye, and get off the stage, is this huge victory. And Spider's version of that is one of those moments that makes me laugh and cry at the same time every time, and I love those. Hey, remember that time when I found a human tooth down on the land sea? Hey, remember that time when we decided to kiss anywhere except the mouth? Hey, remember that time when my favorite colors was pink and green? Hey, remember that month when I only ate boxes of tangerines? So cheap and juicy! Tangerines. Oh, sidebar on the Doctor Who. Uh, um, I think uh, Russell T. Davis or someone is a fan of uh, the authority because uh, um, at one point, during the Empty Child, Rose wears a Jenny Sparks style uh, Union oh, Jack. Quite definitely. And I. And they, I think Jack's ship was based on a Brian Hitch design as well. Uh, Hitch designed the, redesigned the Daleks and I think did the Cybermen run. Oh, nice. Because the Cybermen, as you see them in Age of Steel, look an awful lot like the second suit of armor that Ultimates Tony is wearing. Before yeah. Someone in Marvel editorial is heavily concussed and hands him to Orson Scott Card to write. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of controversial politi- political writers... <laughs> There's two quotes in these books that made me think that Warren Ellis is the time traveller that we keep realising went back in time and tried to warn us about last year. Yeah. Um, and t- two in particular that made me think that is he, he's talking to somebody about... Oh, everyone who read Transmetropolitan knew they didn't vote for him. <laughs> oh, I realised that. <laughs> God knows how many of them voted for... well. Not just him, but the Brexit thing as well. Mm, yes. Continue. Yeah. Um, the He's talking to somebody about um, uh, treating life as an autopsy, going as deep and as hard as you can when you're ripping things apart. 
and uh, basically making it clear that he has no interest in what he calls plain old observation. Um, plain old observation is kind of what put us where we are right now. The argument that you have to give both sides a fair hearing mm. and make no biased comment in either direction. When one side manifestly has no interest in the other side's opinion, mm. it, that ceases to be a viable balance. Yeah. Yeah. And also, notice which side it tends to be saying, but you have to give us a fair hearing, even if we have no rational facts or uh, legitimate arguments. You have to give us a fair hearing. But anyway. So I can't that's... back that up with paperwork. No. Sidebar, by the way, I don't know how long it's going to take for us to do Austin Powers, but we've been doing a couple of Dr. Evil like quotes just like... When we when we do quotes, we're just watching something and something related to something that's in our brain will turn up. I started doing it, and then Sharon started doing it. Bless her. It, it, if I could briefly sidebar your sidebar, are you aware yeah. that So I Married an Axe Murderer is the secret origin of Dr. Evil? Oh, shit. I did not know that. <laughs> um, Seriously, there's, there's a scene in a very specific location in San Francisco, which I've been to now, which is great, mm -hmm. where he does the Dr. Evil voice for the first time. And oh. uh, at the time, it didn't mean anything. But you watch it, now it after Austin Powers, and you're like, God, that was him. He was on the way. Mm. Should have known with the uh, the fat bastard hiding in the wings, pretending to be his father. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, the, the point I was getting at was, uh, it, it's very simply, uh, Dr. Evil says ludicrous things, can't back that up with paperwork, and is so manifestly you know, obviously evil and surrounded by incompetence, at what point did that become viable, electable material? <laughs> I just question. <laughs> I just scrolled past the gift from Deadpool of the <laughs> fake laugh hiding real pain. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Um, but the, the other quote that really kind of hit me in the face is um, when he's talking to the Beast. And he says... The Beast is the uh, president, the president. That he cannot stand. Yeah, that but he is wrote a 1,000-word still... column on that just said, fuck, 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 yes. fuck, fuck, fuck. But is still technically a better president than, than the, the Smiler. Smiler. Yeah, indeed. I don't know. I'd argue that one at this point, but anyway. Um, I, I, I honestly don't think the Beast is as bad because he doesn't. he is not as incompetent. Mm. That's a good point, actually. Thinking about it, looks aside mm. and intelligence aside, he's more the smiler than he is the beast. It's it's a horrible fusion of the two, like some David Cronenberg body, body horror, horror. <laughs> where the two of them have somehow fucked and merged. Oh, dear God, no. Um, we have, by anyway. the way, not sworn anywhere near as much as the... Like, if you... There's so much foul language in this There book, really is. Yes. It's going to turn your hair white. Then it'll drop out and you'll notice a little spider tattoo on your forehead. It's okay. So... Continue. Yes. <laughs> this quote that I will get to eventually. Um, so he's... Uh, Spider's talking to the president and he says, You're afraid of a real America. All you bleeding heart pissants are the same. And Spider's response is, There is no real America. All there is is what we make it. And what you want to make it is a big fucking saw that oozes money like pus. <sighs> it's gross. Yep. But it's valid. That's on point. It is indeed. Absolutely. The quote that um, hit me hard in terms of when I'm at my most tired.
people keep saying to me, you're doing a good job, Spider. You're really changing things, Spider. And it's all bullshit. I'm not changing a fucking thing. I'm a writer, a journalist. I can't change shit. What I do is give you the tools to understand the world so that you can change things. And I'm stuck here only hoping that you do. Yeah, it, and the, the book is absolutely chock full of lines like that. Every, you know, there's, there's about one every issue. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at my Twitter profile right now, and, and because my monitor hates me, the, the dialogue box isn't on there. But the image I have on there is of Spider sitting on the window ledge in, I think, issue two, uh, outside his first disgusting apartment, typing away on, as you point out, what is very clearly a 1995 MacBook with... <laughs> with, you know, some communist battery stuck to the side. And the line is, and so, freed, I begin to write. Hmm. And, well, on the days when I'm on point, on the days when everything in my brain can be pointed at what I do for a living, that's how it feels. There's, there's a cult of celebrity surrounding him um, that he resents. He's adored. People uh, are amazed that he is able to speak his mind so clearly. He is, he's become a luminary, and even better word for that, a panjandrum. Basically someone who people will listen to. Again, this is one of the things that I think Ellis is off point with in terms of what the internet ended up as. Imagine how much constant hate Spider would have to live with. Basically, he seems to be hated by individuals who, you know, go Jerusalem, who've been slighted by him on a personal level. There is nary a hint of the amount of faceless, anonymous millions who would hate him purely for being who he is and saying who he is. Mm. He never gets called a cuck once. That's a that's a good point. He does he is hated on an authority level. Yeah. There are organisations who've been um, who've had their apple carts upset by him who, who will actively try to kill him. Hmm. But I don't know how um, Bill Hicks or Hunter S. Thompson would have uh, dealt with the internet as it is now, having seventy five parody Twitter accounts. <laughs> <laughs> it's a way of doing it. Yeah. But um, it's almost as selfish and as confused as everyone is in uh, Spider's world. It's almost less ugly than the internet we actually have at times. Oh, less nothing. It's less almost nothing. It's less ugly. Yeah. For for that exact reason, the signal to noise ratio and 
I mean, there is no way of saying this without sounding like either a terrible hipster or the phrase, I was here when all of this was now but fields. <laughs> it, it, it is seconds from being spoken. But you, you look at, at the, the rolling up kind of outrage storm that Twitter so often is, and it, it just gr- you know, grinds you down. And crucially, it gets in the way. I mean, I can remember when you type something into Google and your first six results weren't ads. Or BuzzFeed articles. Yeah. (laughs) BuzzFeed has killed research. You can't look for something anymore because there's six BuzzFeed articles all with the same tiny snippet of misinformation. Yeah. People would watch Dave Gorman's Google work adventure these days and go, well, how the hell did that work? Precisely. Two words? <laughs> but Twitter, I was trying to work out whether Twitter for me was kind of like alcoholism because when I go on back onto it now and I start looking down the feed, I would imagine that an alcoholic <laughs> who has stopped drinking finally gets a, a, a glass of scotch in their hands and there's that kind of... <sighs> and that release and that sort of... Like um, you know, like you're finally getting that hit and that relaxation that comes with that. Going back onto Twitter now and actually like just going through my my feed, I tense up like fucking crazy. Every orifice of my body seizes up, and my shoulders leap above my head by ten feet. It's the opposite of a hit for me. It's being hit, and this is. Like, this is the feeds of people I like. I've deleted and muted the people I don't like and disagree with. This is just reading righteous indignation. And, the, I mean, there is this thing that happens an awful lot on Twitter where someone will go, this is awful. Look, go here and look at it. And that's how they win. That's how the bad people win. But again, too distracted looking at the awful thing and and arguing about race bending. But uh, it's not that that's not an important thing in the grand scheme of things. This is the problem, though. It's one thing trying to deal with your own frustrations and angers and upsets is is hard. Trying to deal with fifty other people's anger and hurt and upset is ridiculously hard. Exactly. Basically, after the election, I put down Twitter and I haven't actually really properly ever gone back and I hope I never really will. This means that I've lost my key tool for communicating with people on a daily basis. And I've been casting about to work out how best to address that because I'm lonely as fuck by comparison to how connected I felt last year. But last year was killing me. I was in the middle of a recurring nervous breakdown. And the one emotion that was peaking more than anything else, more than anger, more than fear, more than sadness, was disgust. And that is not a way to live. And it it just, after a while, it's just like punching me. You know, like, oh, this is awful. Oh, this is awful. This is awful. And you can actually feel your spine liquefy as you drop into a puddle of grease on the floor. But, I mean, we're, we're not going to solve how to do social media in a way that's fun, inclusive, responsible, and works as a society-building tool tonight. 
I mean, <laughs> we need at least another two and a half hours for that. <laughs> but to come up with the coding for our own special Twitter, <laughs> we dicks not allowed. With Blackjack and, and Hookers. <laughs> Internet high five. <laughs> I think we just sold it, Alistair. We just spend all our time on Skype with you. It's easy. <laughs> but at, at the same time, it's one of the really interesting elements of the book. Like, like you say, the internet here is actually kind of nice. Yeah. And, and the version we've got often isn't. Yeah. You know? Theirs is experimental. It's Like I said, it's like Babylonian or it's the hedonism of the last days of Rome. Everyone's fucking themselves in different ways. Mm. Yeah, I think the difference with the, the the internet as is in this world is that everybody's reading it, but not everybody's writing it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, I mean, th there's th that almost falls in the other element, of, and this ties perfectly back to your brilliant point about this being a superhero narrative. Spider's a superstar journalist. There's a deliberately weird thing in that sentence, and if you look at it for just a second, you'll spot it. You know, mm. uh, this is a world where a, a journalist can affect real social change as a rock star, not mm. as someone who doesn't sleep enough and who spends three years going through someone's receipts. You know, and that's one of the other areas where this isn't especially realistic, but it's one of the areas where it's at its most idealistic, I think. Mm. Name three celebrity journalists beyond uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Woodward and Bernstein. Um, okay. May, may I uh, readjust? Uh, name uh, three contemporary. Oh Jesus Christ! I mean, that, that, that's that's like trying to work out which you know which leg you want the spork stabbed in first. <laughs> See, I would say that whichever journalist takes down Trump will suddenly become a superstar. You had a little bit of it with somebody like Kate Adie. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. people who go to war-torn and dangerous and earthquake-riddled hmm. and will send you images and reports from those places. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's there's like a set, almost a separate cadre of people who you you could conceivably put in the superstar bracket depending on what your political leanings are i know as many people who would rather who would you know be quite happy if laurie penny never wrote another word again as long as she lived as would rate her as one of the best journalists of of our time i'm kind of in the second camp i, I like a lot of what laurie does um owen jones god help us all alex jones any journalist these days whose name rises above the, the general surface is open to a legion of interpretation, good or bad, right or wrong, and often are brought up by that exact mob of hate who exist purely to drag them down or to use them to beat their own ideological horse into the ground. And that's something you never see here. I hate the fact that Alex Jones is probably the closest equivalent to Spider in our world if it makes you feel any better one of my, one of my best friends lives in Texas and, and in Austin in fact where Jones lives and, and did tell me some time ago that he is an absolute joke locally no one takes him seriously good <sighs> okay right sorry we're getting sad here and <laughs> right um 
Uh, other details about the book. Let's let's round up, folks. Okay. Like ten more minutes. Any other details about the book that make it that will? Because we've made it sound really heavy and depressing. It's supposed to be funny. I didn't laugh while reading it. I gave it a dry grin a lot, but it was like it it was like reading a, a political horror. Um, but there are. Like if for a first timer reading it, the kind of things that Spider comes out with are so florid, so disgusting, so bizarre, so kind of uh, freeform, just dark poetry, that it's it's worth reading just for the way Spider relates to the world in text. I think there's there's one thing that informs on how he relates to the world, and it's one of the things that, depending on what mood you're in when you're reading it, is either ridiculously off-putting or incredibly hilarious. And I have had both responses to it, hmm. um, which is that he is perpetually, ridiculously, unsatisfiedly horny all, all the time, the time. Yes. he keeps yes. punching himself in the dick because it hurts to be this horny every all the time. time he fails to 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 get laid which is frequent mm. um yeah he punches himself in the dick just and as much of a celebrity as down. he is this is the one thing that again doesn't ring true about yeah. him being this big he should he have groupies blowing him dawn to dust yeah but no nobody's interested i the, the one panel that made me absolutely wet myself figuratively speaking um was when he um, he's spent like several pages trying desperately to get somebody to sleep with him and they're all coming up with reasons why they can't even go out to dinner with him and he such asks, as the aforementioned i've had my stomach replaced with a stack of bacteria so yeah, i don't have so to i don't eat. have to eat also um, i'm clinically dead yeah um <laughs> it's, it's the woman who comes out with like 12 reasons and he's like just a no would have done and she was like I just wanted to make sure all bases were covered <laughs> <laughs> but she's like I, I'm, I'm what was it In, intersex okay so yeah having been turned down by somebody who doesn't eat because she's a breatharian and somebody who doesn't eat because her stomach's been replaced with um, a stack bacteria. of bacteria breatharians says, uh, don't need to eat because God gives them presents yes uh, through the air through the air um, so he approaches this um, this woman who's who's talking about how much she loves his column and, she's a BuzzFeed um, article writer if I ever saw basically, one basically yeah um, and he's, he's it's a simple question do you want to go out to dinner sometime and her response is sorry no I'm married not hungry and Infected with seven unknown diseases, gay, pregnant with lizards, and clinically dead. Sorry, no would have done all on its own, you know. Just making sure. <laughs> I I don't have a, a, a kind of individual line so much. It's just the rhythm of his speech. Mm. You know, it's like you said earlier. This is a character who, because he's an egotistical little shit, is very much in love with the sound of his own voice. And and you you can see these points within so many issues of this where he's basically on vocal vacation. I mean, one of my favorites is listen to the chair leg of truth. It does not lie. What does it say? And that, that entire speech. And I mean, this is a scene where he is literally beating a man for information with the chair leg. And it's not nice, but it's made somehow. It, it's like the, the um, I think it's Gridlocked, the old uh, Tim Roth, Tupac Shakur movie, which mm. Kermode talks about as having the funniest stabbing sequence of all time in it. And he's right. It does. It shouldn't be, but it's very funny. And he, like I say, he's literally pummeling this man with a chair leg and coming out with these J of J and Silent Bob-esque, beautiful, florid profanity towers as he's doing so, which are at least as unsettling as the fact he's bouncing a piece of wood off this guy's dome. 
or as he says directly to the beast, who I'm going to make sound like Nixon here. Oh, I remember your name, you fuck. I remember the thing you wrote about me. It's because of you that everyone calls me the beast. Everyone. The press, the cabinet, my children. Quit whining, you earned every fucking word. You pissed on the economy, you shat in the law, and you wiped your ass on the truth. You ought to be peeled, salted, driven through the streets by mental patients with spike planks, and then used as a toilet and jizz catcher by baboons in heat. At best. Yes. He comes up with that sort of stuff quite a lot. <laughs> ooh, ooh. There's, there's a lot of monkey spunk. Yes. There is. really is. <laughs> Actually, I have one, and it's from that, that Winter's Edge special. And it's Spider at, at his kind of most, most zen, almost. And it's Things get better one winter at a time. So if you're going to celebrate something, then have a drink on this. The world is generally, and on balance, a better place to live this year than it was last year. For instance... I didn't have this gun last year. As he lifts the Frostbiter 7K snowball <laughs> minigun. So, and, and yeah, we mentioned the reservations before. It's only in one issue, but it's uh, there's a sort of a backdrop to it. Culturally speaking, they the city fosters various living spaces for now dead or gone communities, and they recreate them, kind of like living museums, and I don't know where they are. There's almost like you step into another dimension to get there. But they have recreated them so accurately that the Mayan civilization has died out five times in a row because they keep throwing severed heads into their own drinking water. They're uh, effectively there to study the mistakes of the past, but at the same time to keep them alive. It's, there's a beauty to that, Absolutely. which was heartening to read. And, and just the, the whole idea behind that of this is going to fail a lot. That doesn't matter. It needs to be done. And to have that sitting inside a book that is so concerned with brutalist political reality presented in turn in a medium which has been seconds from death for as long as I have been alive. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether I ever told you this, but during the time I ran the store, um, there was a very long period where... the I was I was reading a couple of message boards, one of which had a guy who would regularly come on daily and report how low Marvel stock had dropped. Yeah, there was one point where Marvel auctioned the doors of their conference room on eBay because they needed the money, and had and I really don't want to get into the vagaries of the comic industry. No, certainly not at the one hour forty eight mark, and it's really fucking dull. Also, just to be clear. <laughs> Basically, imagine the stupidest business model possible. Set it on fire. Demand that everybody spend money two months ahead of time. Congratulations, you're a comic retailer. Probably for about three months. Um, but had Marvel folded, a sizable portion of the Western comic industry would have gone with it. And there was this, yeah, everyone danced the apocalypse out in the comic industry in the late 1990s. So to see... A book, certainly now, with the benefit of hindsight, talking about the importance of art and about things that fail. And I mean, throw a rock any given week, you'll see a comic that, that has been cancelled, often for no good reason. That's really powerful and very kind of postmodern in about six different ways. What I'm going to do is uh, to keep an eye on Comixology, and if there's ever a sale on Transmet, that's what I'm going to publish that hard on um, Twitter. Or I may even chuck it into the podcast if it's going for a few days, and, uh, and like send you guys in that direction because that's the time to clean up the books. Um, 
in the meantime, uh, if you folks haven't already, uh, Lust for Life is the uh, second book. That's the one to get. Then go backwards and throw the money down for Back on the Street. It's a really good introduction to Spider, but it's not the best book to start with, interestingly enough. Um, and then proceed as you wish. But um, it's worth your time. It's worth reading. It's dated, but it's also futuristic. Somehow it manages those two at the same time. And it's also relevant. So it somehow exists in all temporal realities. It's a Schrodinger's comic book. (laughs) Or, like Uh, lead, it's just so monstrously high that it does not experience time as we do. And it uh, still remains uh, in the the top three most influential books on me, ever. And I hope that I can carry a little of that forwards, is all. Okay, so, Kieran, we hope you enjoyed this assessment of Transmetropolitan. I think it was uh, rich and diverting enough to to be worthy of our... uh, our library. Alistair, thank you so, so much for coming on. Where can people find... Uh, people can find your stuff all over the place. Where's really good right now? What's really good right now is any one of the four podcasts I own. Um, I, run, I own four shows. Escape Pod, which does science fiction. Pseudopod, that does horror. Podcastle, that does fantasy. And Cast of Wonders, that does YA. So it covers an awful lot of other genres. And what we do is really simple. We run every show weekly, and every week we will feature a complete short story read by a narrator with an introduction by a host. We've been running 13 years. Uh, I've owned the company for three years. We have 1,800 episodes in the back catalog, and they are all completely free. So if you have a podcatcher, uh, or you use iTunes, or you whittle it from the Internet, I don't know. I don't know what the kids do these days. Um Probably just plug it into their ass. There you go. Uh, <laughs> basically, search Escape Pod if you want science fiction, Pseudopod if you want horror, Podcastle if you want fantasy, and Cast of Wonders if you want Moye. And scroll through the feeds, pick something you want that looks interesting, and dive in, because I guarantee you there's something in there you'll like. Two characters that I'll talk about before we go. Mitchell Royce, Angelina Rossini. Uh, Yelena starts out ostensibly as one of uh, as Royce's niece, but I think he was just saying that so that Spider wouldn't fuck her uh, or abuse her too much. Um, didn't work on both counts. But uh, uh, Yelena is the future of this. There's, um, I don't, you know, I'm not, not going to go into exactly how it develops, but basically, while Shannon starts out wanting to be a, a journalist, it becomes clear that Yelena has a very good eye for this stuff. And um, she is... I found it difficult to really describe her because she's quite morose and she's quite um, sh- almost shy. Like, she doesn't speak that much, but when she does, it's quite explosive. She is but mid-1990s Janine Garofalo in comic form. I cast Janine Garofalo as her in my ideal Spidey Spider way back in the early 2000s. Wow. Yeah, she has that going on. What? Oh, my God. What? Right. Um, For some reason, it was Heather Graham as uh, uh, Nana, Shannon. Yuma Thurman. Yuma Truth Thurman. about cats and oh, dogs. Truth about cats and dogs, yeah. And you switch out Ben Chaplin for uh, Somebody Patrick who is, Stewart. Yeah. That works. Um, it's quite a soppy story, but given what Yuma Thurman mm. eventually went on to do with Samurai Swords, that 
kind of yeah. works. Either way, um, Shannon uh, is, and, and her form a, 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 a really firm friendship. And um, the, like I said, the, the main element between Spider and the assistants and the other person I just mentioned, Mitchell Royce, his editor, is that they challenge one another. They go back and forth on the ethical scale, like at one point Mitchell will be greedier than Spider, and at another point Spider will appear to sell out, and Mitchell will actually take a step back and go, ah, okay. And that that constantly keeps you guessing as to exactly where the moral or ethical backbone of this book resides. Because it's no no one of them is the exemplar of this. They are challenging each other. And Royce actually comes into it quite a lot. I would have had uh, Oliver Platt as Royce. He has that... If you look, watch him in Bullworth, he's got that kind of... <laughs> like, really freaking out, which, um, uh, which, which Royce has quite... There are times when he's smoking ten cigarettes at once because Spider's giving him a nervous breakdown with what he's doing. But at the same time... Occasionally, he will be Spider's conscience, mm. and even though he's the one, he's the pig fucker, like you know, holding the purse strings, and you know, propelling Spider towards more and more ability abilities to sell out. Like magical truth saying bastard Spidey is the Japanese animated version of Spider that uh, he, you know, flew into a a rage at the promoter who suggested it to him, and and Royce had to batter him with money uh, until he finally gave in, which suggests that Spider can be bought, which means there's always an element of doubt as to where that line lies with Spider. But it's the interplay between these four characters throughout the book that leaves you looking for where the right is in this, because it's never held by one person. No. It's it's almost the... Um, Hank Azaria, during his time writing Herman's Head, which is one of those sitcoms that just I can only assume was passed on a bet. Um, it, it's a flat share sitcom about the six elements of the main character's personality. And and it cuts between the inside of his head and the outside world. It's really good and, and horribly dated. But Hank Azaria wrote... For- Is one of them surprise? Yes, I think so. Ah, uh, yeah. That's surprising. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> Hank Azaria wrote for this I, I, in the early days of The Simpsons, and obviously when you know they began paying him the gross national product of Ecuador, he basically mm. full time on that. But he coined the term the idiot ball, and the idiot ball is what he referred to as the character that has to be stupid for the episode to work. And he has kind of railed against this and said this is the biggest problem with twenty-two minute scripted sitcoms. Someone has to be an idiot, otherwise you don't have an episode. Mm. And in Transmet's case. I, I think it's like the ethics ball. It's like every, mm. every story often has more than one designated adult. <laughs> I like that concept. <laughs> I think I know how to get around the idiot ball thing, though. Um, you have to treat it like Greek tragedy. The audience has to be allowed to know that they're an idiot and they have to sympathize with them for being an idiot and therefore allow it to pass because it's part of the story. Mm. Weirdly, I, I actually saw a movie this week that's predicated on that entire that exact concept. You absolutely nailed it. Mindhorn is built entirely around the fact the main character is a cretin. He knows he is. He knows he's a terrible failure as a human. And the whole movie is him trying very hard to not quite look that in the eye. And it's that exact thing. He's immensely sympathetic, even as he's this dreadful, self-absorbed scumbag. 
I cannot wait to see Mindhorn, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it earning £10,000 in UK cinemas. <laughs> <laughs> in all of the two screens it's released in. God. Okay, so this has been Transmetropolitan. I want to see you guys sending me three-eyed smileys to show that you have been reading this stuff. Uh, tweet me those. Because I do... Ch- I check my feed on Twitter. I just I like to, to look at your... You know that... It's like Dana opening the fridge when I look on Twitter. <laughs> I don't want to do it. And it goes, and then I have to slam it. But, um, but I'm fine receiving messages. So tweet me the three-eyed smiley. But don't make your cat smoke. The, there, is a three, uh, there is a two-faced cat that uh, Spider adopts very quickly in issue one. And I was trying to work out what that um, came down to. And it, it's very simple. It just shows that he wants to nurture something, even if it's ugly, even if it's disgusting, and even if it's, uh, it, it makes his living conditions far worse by urinating everywhere. Mm. He wants to keep something alive. Like I say, he, he likes the underdog, or in this case, the undercat. Hmm. Oh, I just had a thought. If I apply my thing of the male characters and the female characters function as each other's anima or animus, and the assistants are spiders, and he necessitates having two, it's because he can't cope with his ethical side being nailed to one perspective. Oh, that's brilliant. The fact that his the animalistic side of his animus, because the cat is a girl, um, is a two-faced one. That's brilliant. Nailed. Yeah, nailed it. I, I think that's it. There's about a million reasons why I married this woman. <laughs> <laughs> she smokes unfiltered black Russian cigarettes. Make sure we have at least a gross at the place at any time. Um, that's the cat, not Sharon. <laughs> I think we're done on Transmetropolitan, folks. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested to hear if you, which of you guys are picking this one up. So, like I say, tweet at me with the uh, three-eyed smiley. Let me know. For next week, your assignment is to obtain and watch The Grand Budapest Hotel, the 2014 film directed by Wes Anderson. This is because the film is exquisitely detailed, and we would have to spend the whole podcast describing the plot, the characters, and the visuals, so it makes much more sense for you to have all seen it first, so we can elaborate from there with everyone on the same page. This will be worth your time. Uh, I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And I've been Alistair Stewart. Whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) An interception. (laughs) School's out, baby. (laughs) School's out, you pig fucker. I see trees and green.